0: Thank you. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me this evening to talk about the U.S. men's national team's 3-1 loss to Julian Nagelsmann's Germany is a man who, in honor of that U.S. performance, will be committing to a strong performance in the first half of this podcast <laughs> before sort of switching off for most of the second. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe.
1: I like you, Taylor. I think that works for me. I'll expend all my mental and physical energy in the first bit of this show. I'll leave the rest for later. In the, in the spirit of doing that to open this show... Did you catch Julian Nagelsmann's outfit on the sidelines? Because I'll be honest, that is one of the ugliest yellow and blue plaid combos. Actually, that already just sounds ugly by me saying those words together.
0: It, it just, it, Julian, it was, it just wasn't a good fit, man. I, I did catch it. I didn't catch it maybe in as detail as you did. Has he worn that before? I feel like I've seen that jacket and that pant and that shoe combination from him before. We know too much about Nagelsmann's wardrobe, but I'm, I'm sticking <laughs> with this topic for now since you brought it up.
1: It is possible. For some reason, Nagelsmann strikes me as the kind of guy to like, cycle through four different outfits. Maybe he's yeah. got like four shirts, yeah.
0: four pairs of, of, of joggers, and four shoes. I can see that being the way he goes. Do you think taking over the German national team will make him be less adventurous or more adventurous? This is what people are here for, for sure. But I feel like when you take over Germany, especially with the way he left Bayern, like, does he go more traditional, more conservative? Does he manage in just later Hosen, or do you think we'll see some like, Riddler-esque outfits before the, the year is out? I don't
1: I don't know. I think it'll be the first home game that really tells us. If he pulls up on his longboard, then we know he's going to do whatever the heck he wants to do. If he pulls up to that game like a normal person in some sort of car or public transportation, yeah, I think Germany have got to him.
0: Any thoughts on the Berhalter wardrobe before we get going with the actual review? Since we've uh, talked about one, we should talk about the other.
1: I thought it was fine. What well, was just like yep. a, a blue Nike U.S. soccer yep. like hoodie? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't inspired. I'll put it that way. And, and to be honest, yeah. I wasn't inspired by different pieces of this game, even though the beginning, like we talked about, was fun.
0: I'll tell you what I was inspired by, if we're going to start on a positive. Was that crowd? Uh, the yeah. the atmosphere was the best I can remember since, like, maybe the Panama World Cup qualifier that I was at, where it was a pretty rowdy atmosphere the whole time. Uh, this one, sellout crowd in Connecticut. Uh, really loud from start to finish. The drums were excellent. I feel like sometimes the drums are sort of... There because people think they're supposed to have drums, but it doesn't always lend itself to the atmosphere. <laughs> this time, we had some good drummers doing some variations of stuff. And I thought the atmosphere was so much better than I expected it to be for a friendly. It felt to me like you and I had talked about this match being or feeling sort of like the actual start of the next cycle under Burhalter. Because of the hiatus with him not being in charge and then being brought back, but then the last friendlies not being that good, this one felt like, okay, here we go. And it seemed like the crowd, the atmosphere tonight mirrored that a little bit.
1: I thought so. I really enjoyed getting to watch this game. I thought from not just an atmospheric perspective, but also... Based off of the time of kickoff, I was kind of mm-hmm. expecting like the sun to be up and for the angles to be weird and bad shadows. And I turned it on and maybe it was cloudy in Connecticut. I have, I have no idea. Yeah, we'll have to sure ask figure that out. But like the the visual TV experience, I thought was really, really good. And it seemed like being there in person was going to be even better because Taylor, you're absolutely right. That stadium was packed, UConn's football stadium, a bit of a weird spot for this game, as we've already discussed over on the Patreon. But like the, the fans showed up. You had a few Germany fans in the crowd. You had plenty of U.S. fans in the crowd. The atmosphere was very strong, and I thought that bled into the start of this game. Taylor, we mm. talk about friendlies and kind of the the difference in energy that sometimes you get in an international friendly versus you know, even set aside like a, a high-level club game, but thinking about even a, a, a Copa America or a mm. Euro game or, or you know even a, a Nations League final here in the United States for the USMNT. This, this game, at least the first half to me, did not feel like a friendly. It felt like both no. teams really had... Something to prove, the U.S. wanting to prove that they can hang with some of the best in the world, and they didn't really fully accomplish that goal today. And Germany wanting to show that, yeah, we are better than our recent results have been, and Julian Nagelsmann wanting, obviously, to start his career off on the German national team on a very, very strong note. So I was, I was really, like, encaptured in, in by this first half mm-hmm. and by the beginning of this game. I thought it was really, really strong.
0: Agreed. And uh, I genuinely don't mean to be discourteous to, to Germany or German supporters when I say this, but aspects of the first half, especially those first 15, felt like Germany came out with a, we're Germany, even if we've been kind of poor lately, you're the United States, you're going to be a little bit nervous, you're going to back off a little bit. And that has historically been the precedent for these games. And if anything, it seemed like the United States took the game to Germany more at least from a physicality standpoint and and so it was much more open it was much more technical and when the United States were up 1-0 it felt for a moment like could, could this be could this be the start of something like are they really going to like beat Germany and and do so by playing some expansive pretty possession attacking soccer uh, and then it was not meant to be and and, <laughs> and i think the story of this game is very much going to be how bright the United States looked in the first half and then how poor they looked in the second. And I think there is definitely truth there, but I think you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording in in rewatching chunks of this game. The warning signs or the issues of the second half were were there in the first and maybe Germany not quite as sharp as they were in the second. And I think that's also part of the second half is that Germany just so much sharper, so much more intense in that second half. Uh, so definitely not a stronger second half for the United States. It definitely was for Germany. But that opening half, uh, yeah, had me feeling excited, had me feeling some things, Joe Lowry. And I think that's
1: justified. We don't get to see the U.S. play teams of this caliber very often. We talked about that in, in previewing these mm-hmm. games think about England, you think about the Netherlands, now you think about Germany. Those are the top-tier European opposition that the U.S. has played underneath Greg Berhalter. So we don't see this kind of thing a lot. And yes, it is a friendly, and that does change the calculus a bit. But the intensity was there, as we've already discussed. I was really pleasantly surprised. I don't know what the right term there is for how the U.S. started this game. They weren't yeah. dominating the opening stretches here, but they were stringing some nice passes together. The intent to play their way against Germany while making some strategic concessions. Like they didn't press, the US didn't press high for 90 minutes in this game. They spent a lot more time in a mid block. They spent a lot more time in in even a a slightly lower block inside their own half. But the US, they wanted to play with the ball. They wanted to build from the back. They had mixed results there in Weston McKenney, I thought struggled in that early on in this game. But you could tell the intent of what they were trying to do. And it wasn't just empty. It wasn't just, we want to do this because this is how we believe Mm -hmm. soccer should be played. The result was there too. The U.S. was actually creating some really dangerous looks and really nice attacking moves in the final third from very, very early on in this game. The, the final product wasn't there, and I'm sure we'll get onto that. But in general, I was pleased, and I think Greg Berhalter should be pleased with how this game began from a U.S. perspective.
0: We're going to talk about the lineup in terms of how this game literally began. One question, Joe, that I want to like drill down on, reiterate before we get going. We both sort of agree that, Beating Germany would be great. Like, a win against Germany would be a very strong result. That would make us both very happy. At the same time, I think you and I have landed on, with friendlies, we are overall significantly less concerned about the result itself and more about what we learned from it uh, as as supporters of the team, obviously, but as people who are analyzing this team and excited to see what comes next, I think we're trying to see what was positive, what can we learn from, what was negative individually, who sort of rose to the occasion, who do we need to see uh, a bit more from or uh, more out of next time. So is that where you are on this result? Because I know some people are going to be frustrated that it's a loss. Uh, there are certainly already people who were on the Berhalter bandwagon before the game and maybe had to quiet down on that for a moment, but then came roaring right back. So just want to establish early on, are, are you less concerned about the result than maybe certain aspects of the way the game played out? Uh, before before, before I get there, before Germany equalized in the first half
1: and Christian Pulisic had scored his banger. And, and yeah. at that point, it felt like things were all coming up roses for the U.S. in this first half. I, I was already trying to compose my snarky tweet um, to, to drop onto the timeline <laughs> about Greg Berhalter and, and sort of the anti-Berhalter crowd. Uh, it didn't It didn't come to be. It's in the not draft much. somewhere. Actually, I, I didn't even fully compose it yet, so it's not even in the drafts. I, I don't think, Taylor, and I wrote this for Backfield after the game, I don't think U.S. fans should be upset about this performance. I think frustration is very justified because there were a lot of things that went wrong, a lot of things that you look at the tape and we'll talk about it, things that could be tightened up and and you hope for a better result next time. But I don't think U.S. fans should be upset. Number one, it's a friendly. Number two, this is a strong German team. Like losing to this German team, in my yeah. opinion, who a, a team that I still very much think is one of the absolute best teams in the world. And if you look at their personnel and you look at who they snagged as their manager, I honestly don't know how you could think otherwise. And I had a, a bit of back and forth online already with some folks about that, and I, I just don't see it from another perspective. I don't think U.S. fans should be upset. It's frustrating. It's a little disappointing, but there's some good in mixed yeah. in there with the bad and, and <laughs> the disappointment as well.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to get that up front because I suspect that the longer we talk about this game, the longer this show goes on, the more likely I am to end more negative than positive, I think, because of how things played out. But we will get there. Let's start with that lineup. Joe, you and I talked about what we wanted to see and then what we thought we might see. And I'm going to say that we got it pretty close to accurate uh the only discrepancy would be that we uh we thought maybe Luca De La Torre would start this game uh because we weren't sure how much Gio could play although I think you had the idea that maybe we'd see him for the first half and not for the second uh but aside from that we had the front three not surprisingly Musa McKinney in there uh Matt Turner obviously in goal we suggested that Scally uh could start this one on the left with Dest on the right uh and then I think we both would have maybe preferred to see Richards and Robinson as the center back duo because we feel like that's the one that will get long term. Also, we had the idea that If you're going to go with Joe Scally in a position where he's less comfortable, although we end up sort of getting some movement on that one, uh, because I think Scally on the right, Dest on the left. Uh, But we thought maybe we do want Reem in there for the experience, and we did get Tim Reem starting this one. So for me, not that surprising of an 11 uh, other than Gio Reyna starting with that bleach blonde hair.
1: Yeah, yeah, we knew we got Blondie Giorena back. Um life is good for, for at least Giorena. He and Scally got to play on the same side for parts of this game, so the best friends are playing together. Mm-hmm. There's some value there. No, the lineup was was basically what we expected. Center back was a bit of a question mark. U.S. soccer made it a slightly bigger question mark when they accidentally tweeted out the wrong lineup. Uh, originally, they, initially I initially had Miles Robinson over Ooh. Chris Richards in the in the back line. That all got sorted out fairly quickly. But Richards uh, and Reem together, it, I don't think it's clear what center-back pairing is best for the U.S. I've been of the belief, and will continue to be, even though I don't think Chris Richards was particularly good in this game. I think Richards is the, the locked-in starter, and it's either Ream or Robinson or CCV next to him. But we got Richards and Ream in the middle of the back line. We got Scalley on the right, Dest on the left. Yunus Musa played as a number six, but there was a little double pivot action as the game wore on with Weston McKinney dropping a bit deeper. But it certainly was Musa as the deepest midfielder in that group. Gio Reina playing sort of as a 10, sort of as a number eight, drifting into different spots, both with and without the ball. And then the front three, which feels very locked in at this point with Tim Weah on the right, Christian Pulisic on the left, and Philorin Baligan up top for the United States. I'm
0: not, not going to argue with you fully about Richards being the locked in starter, because uh, I think you are probably correct. I think Berhalter probably trying to build towards 2026, and I don't think we can necessarily count on Tim Ream to be there. But I thought he was the best defender by some distance in this game, especially in possession, especially on the ball. But we can talk more about individual performers as we go. I think you are still correct in that long term. I don't know how much faith and I I have in Tim Reem especially when it comes to maybe playing a higher line and having to have some speed there. Certainly not what he is going to be bringing uh, into that equation. But uh, he did bring the veteran Naus and he did bring uh, some skill on the ball in this one. And I think the United States brought a lot of uh, willingness on the ball in this first half, especially in those first fifteen, and this is where Joe, we get to the first sort of interesting wrinkle of the game. Because normally, I would have been watching on Peacock, which I believe is where you watched, uh, but this time I was watching on Max, which is the dumbest rebrand by HBO. <laughs> Nicely done, fellas. I don't think that was fully HBO's call, but still. Uh, and so, what we what we got on Max was uh, the sideline reporter uh, reporting that, like, eighteen minutes into the game, thereabouts, that. Burhalter had been consistently uh, shouting for Tim Weah to not play so deep, not play so wide, but instead push higher up and for Reyna to drop deeper because at times the United States in the first 15 minutes, it looked more almost like a 4-4-2 with uh, Reyna partnering Balogun. Joe, did you see that similar shape to start the game? Very much so. Yeah, that's what I had down in my notes from the jump. I, I thought it was a 4-4-2
1: with Reyna next to Balogun defensively. Yeah. And then in the attack, it would it would shift a little bit. And I didn't think that was a huge surprise because we have seen that shape before. We saw Reyna play in a front two back in March in Nations League. We've seen the U.S. use a 4-4-2 mid-block before. That all seemed to square. And then you texted me, and I go back through and watch a little bit more. And and there's either some intentional asymmetry mm-hmm. going on with Polisic higher on the left than Weah on the right. But when Polisic's so high, kind of level with Balogun and level with Reyna, it makes me think, well, yeah, maybe... Maybe Rana is supposed to be deeper in the midfield, and and Weah is just compensating by dropping deep. So I don't—I honestly don't know what yeah. was going on with the defensive shape. But it, they weren't exactly leaking chances early on in this game. Germany have a couple of nice looks, and and maybe even a, a little bit of a harbinger of things to come for the U.S. in terms of where those looks come from. But I don't know that it was having a huge negative effect. But no. whether it was through yelling from the sidelines or, or whatever happened, maybe it was pre-planned. Maybe it wasn't. Reyna drops into midfield, certainly around minute 20 or a little early, mm-hmm. a little later, and it's then a 4-3-3, and that is the more common defensive shape that we've seen from the U.S. You have the front three, you have Reyna and McKenney playing as number eights, and Musa as the number six, and that was the shape that we saw for almost all of the rest of this mm-hmm. game without the ball.
0: And as thrilling as formation and position conversations can be, we will push on past this one other than for me to say that when Luca de la Torre comes in in the second half, he is sort of taking up a similar-ish position, which was surprising to me. And it is the more advanced of the three central midfielders. It felt like you would have Musa and McKinney not quite as a double pivot. Musa definitely doing the Adams job, but McKinney more likely to drop a little bit deeper. And so my assumption would be that I think... Uh, on first watch, I thought it was Reyna like just way too high and he needed to be 20 yards deeper. And I think my guess would be that he- that Burhalter wanted him to pull back five to 10, maybe. And I think it was more about sort of clogging passing lanes in certain spots. Uh, so I don't think it was quite a Gio Reyna just doing his own thing, which it sounded to me like it was in the very beginning. It felt more like they just needed to fine tune some of the positioning um, and not really having that massive of an impact, but something that I thought was particularly just compelling as to where uh, Reina was lining up and where he was kind of picking his moments. I also thought Gio Reina for still only recently coming back from injury, only playing as a substitute for Dortmund uh, and then coming into this camp for him to get the start. Uh, I thought I think we, I'm a little more positive maybe that, uh, on him than you are, but I I really enjoyed him centrally, and I've, that's not always been a thing that I felt worked very well. I, I would rather see him out on the right, or at least in the past I would, but with the way Berhalter wants Wea to attack, and we know that Christian Pulisic is going to be an automatic starter, I think when there's no Adams, Reyna is the least significant of the drop-offs at central midfield and so maybe you're gonna have some moments when he's caught forward maybe you're gonna have some moments when he should professionally foul and sort of only half-heartedly does so multiple yep. times and somehow doesn't get a card for it but overall I think if we're not gonna have Adams then I'm very comfortable with it being Reina as part of that midfield three
1: I, I think Reina having at almost all times three of the four of Reina, Musa, McKenney and Adams makes sense and when you lose one of them that decision gets pretty easy. The only doubt Mm -hmm. for me, really, with Reyna was whether he was gonna be fit enough to actually play in this game. And and he was, which is good to see. We got 45 minutes out of Gio Reyna, that was the expectation. Felt like there was always going to be a minutes cap for him in this game. I think he did a lot of good things, and and defensively there were struggles. That moment that you described of him kind of tugging the shirt but not bringing, uh, I don't don't remember who the German player was, down in transition is, and Charlie Bohm tweeted this, basically is a perfect encapsulation of at least defensively some of the things you lose when you play Reyna centrally. But I I like what he does in the attack. He has some nice moments in this game. 32nd minute, I believe, draws a foul really well after combining with Tim Weah. Really sharp, really clean in that moment. I just wanted a little bit more from Gio Reyna. I wanted him to get on the ball a little bit more. I wanted him to influence the game a little bit more. The U.S. as a whole, it felt like we're doing a lot of that. But I noticed more from Dest. I noticed more from from Polisic, I noticed more from Weah and Balogun than I did from Reyna. And maybe when I go back and and really dig into the tape one more time, and I've already done it like almost two times, Hmm. maybe I'll see a bit more, but it also could just be my expectations for him being really, really high.
0: All right, we'll keep talking about the U.S. in the first half and then maybe less so in the second half. Back soon. First, a quick break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is
0: giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Joe, let's talk about... Some goals, shall we? Because I think a thing that was notable to me is that when you go back and rewatch or when I went back and looked at my notes, there were more opportunities for Germany in that first half. And it was more back and forth than I expected it to be. Uh, I expected Germany to have plenty of chances. I don't think I expected the United States to be as proactive in their attacking game plan and especially in their individual attacking game plan. And we saw that on display for that goal with Pulisic. Uh, getting the ball, carrying and carrying and carrying and carrying and then carrying some more, and then getting a lovely shot into the back corner. Uh, that was maybe the moment we've been waiting for from Christian Pulisic uh, for quite some time for the United States. Uh, this move to Milan continues to make me very happy because you can just see that confidence and that belief uh, all the more there, even if maybe his appeals for penalties are less strong <laughs> than they've been in the past. Yes, this is true. That that
1: moment a few minutes before <laughs> this goal It's not Christian Pulisic's finest work inside the box, but this goal is absolutely fantastic. It is a wonderful strike from Christian Pulisic, who basically does it by himself. Yeah, there's a couple other players over on that left wing with him. It's Balogun that plays the ball to Christian Pulisic, but then Pulisic cuts inside from wide left, Pushes past Ta on the right side of Germany's defense, drives into the middle, Hummels is kind of backpedaling, Rudiger's kind of backpedaling, and Pulisic just floats it. Well, it's not really floated, but somehow the way he hits it and the way it strikes the back of the net, it feels both floated and like a screamer at the exact same time. Yeah, It is a fantastic goal, and, and not to take anything away from Polisic, but that wasn't the only beautiful moment for the U.S. in this first half. It was the best moment for the U.S. in this entire game. Don't get me wrong. But there were other nice sequences. And even the one where Polisic ends up diving in the box while he's trying to round Ter to, to put the ball in the back of the net. That comes from a really, really nice sequence of play. It's the U.S. on the right side in the 22nd minute. No, maybe not the 22nd minute, but it's on that right side. 26th minute. That's what it is. It's Joe Scally mm-hmm. throwing the ball in, the U.S. play a bit on that side, and then Weah flicks it forward, Balogun gets the ball on the right side, and he cuts it back to Christian Pulisic, and Pulisic doesn't doesn't get the decision right and doesn't get the execution right there. Mm-hmm. But it is a, a really clean sequence of play from the U.S., and they had a, a handful of those, right, in this first 45 minutes. Against a very good German team, Weah, I thought, was, in the first half, he, he jumped off the screen at me. I don't know that really? he was the best player on the field, but the number of times, Taylor, where he was... Beating German defenders down to that right side. The number of times he was driving past Gozins on that wing, he was he was giving Germany a ton of problems on that side. Balogun, I thought his touches were clean when he got on the ball. The US finally found a little bit of, of room and buildup through Dest and through McKenney and Polisic on that left side. Three players who want to combine and want to break forward. Again, none of this really outside of a couple of moments here and a couple of moments there turned into obvious chances. That Pulisic Mm -hmm. one, if he directed it on frame, would have closed the XG gap by a lot in this first half. It doesn't quite come together, but these are the kinds of moments, these are the kind of sequences that I've been waiting for the US to pull out under Greg Berhalter. I've been waiting to see these high-level players healthy and on the field together to be able to combine and and make plays like this happen. Yes, it's the Pulisic goal, it's the individual brilliance, Mm -hmm. but it's also the team-wide cohesion. It wasn't all the way there today against Germany. But it was closer to being there than I think we've seen consistently, at least for the U.S. over the last several years.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think a good way to sort of see that would be in the opening five to ten minutes when the United States, as they did for most of this game, were intent to build out under pressure, to keep the ball, to play in defeat, to keep it moving. Uh, And with Germany committing numbers high up, that was definitely risky. And there were, I think, At least three different times in the opening 10 minutes when the United States either almost completely gave the ball away, did give the ball away, or like just barely were able to not give it away. And I think U.S. teams in the past, even U.S. teams under Greg Berhalter, after those first five to ten, if they didn't sort of settle quickly – ended up going away from the game plan and, and would have ended up, I think, being more direct and going long. And I think when you have somebody like Tim Weah, who when he gets that ball out wide, has that speed that you talked about, it, it, it allows you to... Have possession, but also keep the defender honest or the the opposition honest. Because if you've got that speed to to make something happen, or if you've got Pulisic's individual dribbling ability to make something happen, or Balogun's many different things that Balogun does, I, I, again, I think it makes that defense have to be a bit more honest. And to the United States' credit, I think that they kept possession, they kept the ball moving, they didn't really deviate from that plan. I think that's not the same thing in the second half, and that is one of the notable differences for me, but we're not there yet, Joe, uh, because I, I want to to focus on Weah for one more second because I think it's really interesting. I thought this was a less impressive performance from him, maybe the least impressive performance from him for, in a U.S. shirt in a while, so hearing you say that he jumps out was initially surprising to me, but again, to look at my notes, I see a lot of positive things for Wea in his runs in his defensive pressures in his uh, on the ball work in that first half I felt like in the second he's asked my assumption is he's asked to operate much more centrally and it felt like that was not where he was comfortable that was where I saw him sort of taking heavy touches or taking too long to turn or getting caught on the ball and losing possession maybe two times at least three times to- at least two times if not three times in the first maybe 15 minutes of that second half and he just looked so much less confident when his positioning was maybe 15 yards further inside.
1: Yeah, all of my positive way notes are in the first half. Yeah. So I think we're at least we're aligned on that. He's just around the danger so much. And that was the tale throughout World Cup qualifying when I feel like Tim Wea really cemented that right wing spot. And, and Giorena's lack of fitness certainly helped out with that as well. But that was that was the deal for Tim way and World Cup qualifying. You're playing against Costa Rica at home. You're playing against Jamaica on the road and it felt like he's always around the danger moments in the final third. And I felt like that was very much the case here. Ninth minute, he gets a cut back on the right side. The 10th minute, he has a cross on the floor. It's not the best ball, but it goes out for a corner kick. 32nd minute, great flick to start a counter. 14th, like you can run through the list of these moments. Germany couldn't contain Tim Weah. The final little bit just was not quite there. But another moment that really stands out to me is is when Tim Weah is driving down that right side. It's the 35th minute and he's cruising down the right wing. And then cuts it back to Florian Balogun. It's just behind it. Like the margins were were thin in this game in general because of how how dangerous Germany are when you give them a, a second to breathe. But like the 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 US was just so close to pushing the the momentum in this game to where they needed it to be, and it just didn't quite come together. But I felt like Waya was around a lot of those sequences.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think it's also a frustrating half because I think Germany. You know, we we try to avoid talking about who deserved what, but it felt to me like Germany had a significant number of good attacking chances, uh, and they end up getting that like uh, equalizer in the 39th minute. I think if this is 1-0 at halftime, it's a very interesting game for how Germany changes things and what their approach is going to be in the second half, and same thing for the United States. I think that equalizer maybe gives them, uh, Germany, a bit more momentum, a bit of a feeling of like, it's working, we're doing the right thing, more goals will come. And that is... Pretty much exactly how that played out, because the first, the second and the third goal, I have unfortunate for the United States in all three of those. And uh, I I very much am one who doesn't love the like the term unlucky when you're like, oh, he was unlucky there. Uh, I definitely tend to believe that if you shoot wide, it wasn't unlucky. You didn't shoot particularly well. (laughs) Uh, But all three of the goals for Germany, I felt like were sort of. Like the ball, like losing possession, but then the ball popping up to a German player or a deflection going the wrong way or a block going the wrong way. There are still things that the United States should have done better. But it was interesting to me that none of the goals were truly Germany just carving the U.S. Open pass, 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 pass. And they get a clear shooting opportunity like we saw with maybe the Dutch at the World Cup. This time it felt like. Germany just basically committed numbers, played very aggressively in the United States when they had numbers kind of bunkered and central is when they looked most vulnerable somehow. I'm not really sure how that works, but that seems to be how it played out. And I'm a little surprised that we've gone through
1: 28 minutes, at least on our recording session, Taylor, of you and me talking about the U.S. men's national team without mentioning Tyler Adams. Because I feel like this is at least the moment to do it if there hasn't already been a moment to do it. You're talking about the US sometimes looking vulnerable or, or weirdly at their most vulnerable mm-hmm. when Germany were in the heart of their defense, which is where you expect the numbers to be. I think there's some truth to that. And I think at least part of the issue for the US is they were missing one of the best ball winners in the world and Tyler Adams. There's always going to be a trade-off when you pick any set of personnel groups for any team in the world, right? The US's big trade-off when Tyler Adams is or is not available is whether you're getting his elite ball winning and sacrificing some attacking verve or whether you're getting a little bit more out of the attack, which I think we saw in this first half, and a little less defensively, which we certainly saw in the second half, but we also saw it in the first half. There were warning signs in this game of the U.S. struggling to control zone 14, the area just outside the top of their own box. You divide the field up into a bunch of different zones. This is what Pep does. This is what a lot of the the top coaches in the world do. And zone 14 is the, the name for that space right on the top of your box. The U.S. really struggled in this game, Taylor, to get pressure. On Germany's attackers when they were in zone 14, the US's zone 14. The 11th minute, Gross has a shot that hits the post, and that's Germany's, in my mind, really their first chance of this game. And it's not a super dangerous area to be shooting from, but he can pick his spot, Taylor. You watch that play back, and he is just finesse, he's just passing it into that bottom corner, and Turner tries to get over, and, and the US in general is bailed out by the post in that moment. He has plenty of time to shoot to pick up his head to the point where it's a more valuable shot than just a standard kind of shot through traffic from zone 14. The 22nd minute, the ball uh, is, is on Musiala's foot in the zone 14 again, and he has time to operate. He has time to pick up his head and shoot. And that's the shot that falls to Folkrug, playing as Germany's number nine in this game in a, a pretty flexible attacking shape at the top of a 4-2-3-1 defensive shape. Fulkrug gets on the ball and shoots, and, and it's a nice chance for Germany. And then finally, the best example of it in the first half, and don't worry, there's two more examples of it in the second half mm-hmm. at least. The, the best example is on Gundogan's goal, 39th minute of this game. Sane is on the ball on the right side. He cuts past Dest to get into midfield and just keeps driving and driving and driving and driving. And he cuts past Eunice Musa, who's playing as the US's number six in this game, a player that I do not think had a good performance at all in this match against Germany. Musa. Can't decide, like, do I go clatter him? Do I stand back? And he basically just ends up sitting down. If, if Listeners, if you want to go watch this clip back, please do. And it, it looks like Musa thinks there's a chair there, and there's very much not. He just ends up with his butt on the ground, and Sané keeps driving, and then Gundogan and Sané can have their moment, and Gundogan finishes inside the box. Like, the U.S. could not control that area, and if we're talking about the biggest defensive issue for them in this game, maybe there are some structural things. I think there, there probably are, yeah. and there's some attacking issues, too, that prevent them from scoring more goals. But in terms of the nitty-gritty on some of these danger moments for Germany, the U.S.'s inability to apply pressure in Zone 14 is at the top of the list for me.
0: Yeah, same here. And I think it's it's really frustrating because that feels like, obviously, the area that you do not want to let somebody like, say, Leroy Sané or Jamal Musiala have the ball. <laughs> and, and and I think that is where maybe you have to be content to, to foul, if that's what comes to it. But I, but I think... After, especially after the first goal, to just kind of let the dribbling continue to occur. Like I would rather them have a, a set piece from twenty yards out than with the way this game played out, have them just dribble and dribble and dribble and hope something happens. But I think it's also just distressing, and I think probably is structural that Musa has done the Tyler Adams job. He has deputized as well as anyone we've seen aside from Tyler Adams. And you saw that again and in moments in this game. Uh, there were times when he does sort of fly back out of nowhere and covers a ridiculous amount of ground to turn a 2v1 for Germany into a 2v2 or help turn it into a 3v2 for the United States and help them sort of stop counterattacks and make them recycle possession and not just go straight towards goal. So we saw a lot of that good work. We saw a lot of, a lot of that good running and defending. But then in these moments, there was just this passiveness that maybe is the fusion of responsibility because you think other people are there and you don't want to get posterized. But that it happens so often, and especially in this moment, that it happened with him just looking far more hesitant and far more passive than I'm used to seeing from Eunice Musa. It did make me think a big takeaway is that we continue to not really have anybody who fully is doing Mm. that Tyler Adams gig. Maybe this is just an, an off night for Musa. Maybe some of the structure was wrong. But it was a, a frustrating thing for me that an area that it felt like okay we've we've learned some things it feels like we've got some cover against stronger opposition I'm not as sure that's the case.
1: Yeah, th- this is as it was for this whole U.S. team like one of the best teams that they've ever played right True. in in a U.S. jersey certainly and for Yunus Musa I think it's the best team he's ever played as a number six against period. We can talk yeah. about club we can talk about country. For me this is a massive learning experience for Yunus Musa and I said it clearly I, I don't think he played well in this game. I, I also want to be clear. I think Eunice Moose is a hugely talented player who has a high ceiling as a number six or a number eight. We just didn't see it all come together in this game. Defensively, he struggled to control that part of the field, even when the U.S. are back and organized. I don't think he he won the ball or shepherded the ball particularly well. He also wandered a bit too much in possession. There's a, a sequence in the second half where... You know, he's drifting forward, which is what we've come to expect from Eunice Musa. And it's not a bad thing when you have McKennie who can cover in behind, but McKennie's even higher up the field. And so Musa's striding forward and striding forward and striding forward. The US lose the ball and Germany go right down their throats because there's no protection for the back line. And they end up with a quality shot at the other end that I believe Matt Turner has to save at his near post. That's a moment where Eunice Musa, if he's more experienced, and maybe this is one or two or three years down the road, he's probably positioning himself differently in that moment. And then I guess just to get all my Musa stuff out now, one more thing. In possession, Taylor, we've talked about over and over again, what Musa does so well is he's press resistant, he's smooth on the ball, and he's got a good frame, right? His ability to glide past defenders, to deal with somebody on his back and to drive forward on the ball is elite in in not just the US pool, but in, in global soccer. His distribution is not. That has been the weak point in his game, and I think that was felt by the U.S. more in this game. Six-minute tries to start a counterattack. The ball is picked off pretty easily. There were a number of those moments I felt like that one really set the tone. So I'm I'm not trying to throw Musa out with the bathwater here by any any means, but I, I think we saw some of his limitations and a need to grow if he is going to be that number six against some of the best teams in the world.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, to further that one, in the 56th minute, he picks up a yellow card, uh, ball played into him. He's caught. He has to foul. He picks up the yellow. And that ball is from Luca De La Torre. And it is a driven ball, like sort of at yeah. his shin, <laughs> yeah. thereabouts, with his back to goal. Uh, I also don't know if he got much instruction from Luca De La Torre one way or the other. Uh, and so I put a lot of that on uh, Luca De La Torre. It's hard to not say his full name every single time. You I have know, to. I, I don't it, know really? who made that rule, but it is a rule. Yeah, Because like De La Torre otherwise, LDLT, that's, that seems ridiculous. Either way. Like a sandwich is what it sounds it like. It really does. Kind of a delicious sandwich. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, but that ball to Musa is, is not a good one. And he's under pressure. And it forces him to foul. And it forces him to pick up the yellow card. And maybe this is taking it too far, but... To me, Musa picks up that card and just sort of like head up and then walks back, like rolls his eyes and walks back. And I have to believe if that's Tyler Adams, there's gonna be words and there's gonna be it's clear Luca Devatory knows he made a mistake there. Delicious sandwich he may be, but a mistake he made there. Uh and I think like you've gotta let him know. Like you there has to be that standard. And even there, that Musa just sort of walks back and takes up his positioning. I want a little bit more from him. I want a little bit more feistiness. I want that that level to stay high that demands the expectations to stay high because once the standard dips a little bit, I think it starts to slip all over the place. And I do think that happened in the second half. I think the United States was so much more panicky and mo- so much more direct and so less inclined to put their foot on the ball and slow it down and control things. I felt like there were moments in the first half when they had – good sequences where Germany were chasing and they were possessing and they were creating opportunities and creating space and 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 finding good acres of space to possess the ball and there was just so much less of that in the second half and I think that's not just Yunus Busa not yelling at Luca De La Torre but it is the U.S. on the whole just taking their foot off losing some of that intensity losing some of that drive some of that focus and I think it It ends up playing a large part in how the game played out. Uh, So we're going to come back after break and we're going to talk more about that second half, more about how things changed, more about some individual performers and maybe a quick look ahead to Ghana back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Welcome back, Joe. I'm going to take us back to halftime for a moment cuz I'm going to give you sort of my thesis statement on how things went, and then I welcome you to uh to shut me down with your tactics and your uh, and your stats and the like. But as I said on rewatch, there were plenty of chances for Germany in that first half. So it's not as though the US locked it down, and were fully dominant. Germany get a, a a kind of fluky fortunate goal and then they turned it on. I think they there were already areas where at halftime I have to believe Nagelsmann basically says Keep doing that, but do it better and do it more often, and we'll see what happens. Uh, And they did. Uh, But I think also a thing I felt like was more clear to me in the second half was that the U.S.'s positioning changes a little bit. And I do think it plays a pretty big part in how certain attacks are able to develop for Germany. Uh, But whereas for at least the first 15 minutes, and I think for other chunks of that uh, first half – Tim Wea is wide, Pulisic is wide, Balogun is is drifting. Uh, sometimes he's central as kind of the hold up striker, and I thought he did about as good of a job as we could ask for there. But other times he also drifts into the channel, and then you've got two v two v ones or three v twos when he creates that overload. And it felt like the U.S. was utilizing the wings pretty effectively. In the second half, what I saw was any time the U.S. would attack down the left, let's say Wea would move basically underneath Balogun, very centrally. And then Scally would stay wider to start, but then would oftentimes also move centrally. And so the U S regularly had everybody on one half of the pitch in their own in one half, basically. And, not only does that basically limit your like the space you're going to be able to take advantage of, twice in in the opening 10 minutes, they hit a cross, and it just overhits and rolls out of bounds for a throw-in for Germany, or I think one time it's a throw-in, one time it's a goal kick, but there's nobody at the back post. And I think when you start to cross the ball in, and you're overhitting and no one's there, that's not great. But I also think an aspect of how the U.S. was able to have a little more control in the first half was by having players wide, so that if you attack down the left you recycle possession back to the left back who goes to a center back who goes to a central midfielder who turns and pings one out wide to the right. Germany have to shift over and you have numbers over there to help with that with that shift. And I think you're just able to control so much more. When the United States moves everybody more centrally, you don't have that ability anymore. But it also leaves a huge amount of space for Germany to then attack. And I had six different times in the second half, including one leading to the second goal uh, for Germany. Uh, obviously they're the only one that scored two goals uh, was Rüdiger with Germany would possess, move the ball to the right, move it back to Rüdiger at, at the left center back. And by that point, Weah is too central Scally has dropped off uh, to track his run and Rüdiger then would carry the ball forward 40, 50, 60 yards and basically be uncontested because the United States was so concerned about that shape. And I felt like they crowded over to try to, I think, find tighter passing opportunities and to create overloads. But in the end, they basically presented overloads to Germany over and over again.
1: Yeah, I think that analysis is spot on, Taylor. I didn't notice at quite as much of the drifting, or at least it being mm-hmm. different from the first half to the second half as, as you did. But you certainly go back through and watch the tape on the second half, and I is pinching in. A ton And Scally's positioning is varied. Sometimes he'd be a right-sided center back and you have a back three. Other times he'd be high and wide. Other times he'd be in the half space. And, and there was a lot of variety there. And when you have all of those players on, on one side, like you talked about, I think the, the attacking intent is clear. We want to combine. We want to play our way through. And the U.S. had some success with that in this game. They really did. They moved the ball well. They had some nice little bits of, of one, two, two-touch passing. They were quick in a lot of those sequences but it ultimately didn't, didn't come off. It didn't come in and, and really turn into goals. And Germany then could have a bit more joy on, on the counter. And you couple that with Musa's trouble controlling the midfield. And, and McKinney, I thought, put in a defensive shift, but he is it's still a, a bit erratic always in how he plays, right? That He's, he's going to be the one who's unleashed in midfield rather than the controller in midfield. And, and he was that in this game. His effort was extremely high, but he didn't really corral Germany all the time in the second half. And all, you add all these things together, and all of a sudden, Germany are running down your throats a, a bunch of times in the second 45.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I'm still just confused about what the United States was trying to do defensively, especially when, say, Germany have a goal kick. Uh, and what I thought Nagelsmann did, I, maybe it was there in the first half, and I just didn't notice it. But to me, in the second half, it was much more clear that when they take a goal kick, you have your back four. They stayed as a back four. Maybe Gosens would push up a little bit more and would, once you get closer to midfield, he was definitely the more attacking of the back four. But on a goal kick, you would have that back four and then you would have Gross and Gundawan as your sort of two uh, midfielders as the pivot. But what that gave you is that they would spread out, basically, and then you would have a triangle of like Ta, Gross, and Hummels and then a triangle of Rüdiger, Gundogan, and Gosens. And the United States it seemed in the first half, committed more numbers further up, and I think that did a really good job of disrupting. It is pretty much exactly what Germany did every single time, was have their front three be high up and sort of spaced to be able to cut off the field and then press. But then behind that front three, you would have... The midfield two with one a little bit deeper. And so you had like a three-two-one shape. You had that sort of block through the middle. And the United States, especially in the second half, did the opposite and had one center midfielder step up, who was often Luca della Torre. And then you would have McKinney and Musa drop off. So it's a 3-1-2. But now that passing triangle is always going to have an advantage. And so what it seemed like would happen was that that triangle would move the ball and move the ball. And then the United States would eventually try to collapse on that. And then there would be the outpass to Rudiger and then he could carry forward. And there wasn't really much of an answer to that. And that felt like a deliberate adjustment from Nagelsmann to basically play on what the United States was trying to do and their basic starting shape. And it allowed Germany to have so much more of the ball and so much, I think, ease in getting into attacking positions because Rudiger can carry forward with way sort of half chasing him down. But I think also it wasn't just little adjustments like that. It was also that Germany, I think, ratcheted up the physicality in the second half and the work rate as well. I thought they were cleaner on the ball, certainly in the second half, but their defensive work rate and how often they were knocking people, challenging for 50-50s, and then like really aggressively winning challenges, knocking players over but not getting whistled. Sometimes they would, but the intensity of the German defense and especially the way they would press – was just night and day from first half to second half and and I think it really did between the US's shape their inability to get much in the way of possession and then Germany's ability to possess but also press high play physical it felt like just the uh like if we were on a balance if we were on a scale it just started tipping more and more and more into the US having to make sort of individual plays or play long or play more direct than they wanted to and then Germany winning the ball back and and playing more contained Uh, calm football on the ball in possession. And I think that really helps sort of explain the way this game plays out, where the U.S. doesn't really get many more opportunities. They get a few here and there. But it felt to me like in the second half, this was pretty much all Germany from start to like the 75th minute or so. Yeah,
1: and you add to all of those factors, the differences in the depth for these two teams, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, As a point of encouragement to the U.S., the U.S. played in the first half. We said it over and over again on this show. They played and they had some success, right? They weren't. They certainly weren't played off the field. The U.S. were, were doing fun things with the soccer ball. It was a fun game, a lot of back-and-forth play. Germany had more and better shots, but the U.S. certainly got into dangerous areas and, and nearly put together some of those sequences, too. I think if you're Greg Berhalter, you genuinely enter halftime. If you're the U.S., you enter halftime pleased with what you put together. You get to the second half... And you have to make a change because Giorena is not fully fit, and you put on Luca De La Torre. We talked about that pass. Uh, defensively, he and Joe Scalley didn't seem to be on the same page. There's a moment where I think it's Rudiger who breaks in behind the US's back line, playing as that left-sided center back. Germany are aggressive in the second half, and the US get bailed out by an offside call. But there's a couple of moments mm-hmm. in that second 45 where De La Torre and Scalley just are not on the same page there. So that's part of it. You go from from Giorena, who is either the most talented player on the field for the U.S., or, or one of them, to Luca de la Torre, who's not a bad central midfielder, plays in La Liga, is a very capable professional, is a, a useful member of this squad, but there's just no way that you can argue that he's at the same level as what Gio Reyna brings. And so that's a drop-off. Mm-hmm. And then you get deeper and deeper into the second half, and you get more subs. And all of a sudden, Germany have Kai Havertz on the field, and mm-hmm. the U.S. just put on Johnny Cardoso, and Brendan Aronson, and Kevin Perez and uh, CCV, and Ricardo Pet. like it's just, they're playing different games in some, in some ways by the time the second half finishes. And, and I wrote this, and this is kind of maybe my, my biggest macro thought on this game. The U.S. can absolutely play with the best in the world, but their margin for error is like mm-hmm. zero, right? Their margin for error is so, so small. And the reality for the United States against Germany in this matchup is that they made mistakes. And they were still in the game because they were playing some good soccer and Germany weren't finishing chances early on. But the longer and longer you play on that knife's edge, it's the scale that you talked about, Taylor. The longer and longer you sort of Mm -hmm. let the scale figure out where it's supposed to be, the talent starts to win out, the mistakes start to pile up for the U.S. and some of the tactical battles that maybe get lost in this game start to pile up too and, and all of a sudden you're down by two goals.
0: And I previously said that when the United States was winning, it felt like this could be an important result, like a, a, a statement result for the U.S. program and how much it's developed. I still think that that is a possibility. Yeah. Agreed. But it's more about how we take what we should have learned from this one and apply it going forward. Because what I learned, to your point about the, the depth and the quality of that depth, is that Luca de la Torre can be a very reliable option, can be a good starter for the United States to a point. And that is where he is right now. Now, maybe his game develops more, and maybe he continues to improve, and that's less of an issue. But right now, what I have it as is, like, Luca De Torre is probably in the next tier of midfielders behind the usual three, the MMA midfield plus Reyna. I would add him in there. And then there's maybe a gap, and then there's maybe Luca De Torre. And that's okay against certain opposition, but if, if the United States truly wants to make a run in that 2026 World Cup, you have to have players who can come in and make a difference or at the very least, not let there be a significant drop-off. And I think today we saw De La Torre being asked to do what he was asked to do, I don't think is at that level at present. And so that's not the worst thing, but I think it is a sign of where we need to be going forward and what we need to be working on is exploring those depth options and seeing who can come in and not have a noticeable drop-off or not let the game sort of get away from them. And that's not, again, all on Luca De La Torre, but I think he is part of that second-half slide. So... We've talked about De La Torre, We've talked about Wea We've talked about Musa a little bit. Joe, are there any other individual performances you feel like we should spend some time discussing?
1: I think Chris Richards is worth chatting about for sure. a little bit. I think he was solid early on in this game. Uh, dangerous on set pieces, as he always is. He's, he's lurking in and around the box. Has some, a couple of nice looks there. Defensively, I think he's clearing balls well in the first half. He looks calm in possession. Has a nice diagonal to Serginho Destin buildup in the 18th minute is is part of that U.S. buildup group that is not 100% successful. Again, McKenney, I think, was the sloppiest of those players early on, but he's somebody who's, who's clearly trying to put his foot on the ball to help the U.S. breathe. They didn't look over-odd, the U.S. early on in this game, which I thought Agreed. was a real positive. Mm-hmm. Yes, playing at, on U.S. soil in front of a mostly U.S. crowd, but still, it, it, it's a sign against a very, very good German team that is both historically and currently among the best in the world. So I thought Richard started well. It was the second half where I thought things started to fade a little bit. And really, it's just that goal from Germany. Mm-hmm. It's the second goal from Germany. Serginio Dess has his own issues here. And Taylor, I'll yep. let you run through some of that. Richards is still involved in this play because Dess keeps Germany on side. And so, Richards is going forward before any of this has happened. And he goes and tries to pressure Jamal Musiala. But again, is just a, a beat late. Like he's a beat late, just like the, the U.S. in general is a beat late for a lot of the second half. He's not the only one at fault here. Luca de la Torre and, and Tim White are both in and involved here too. But he is the defender. He's the only one running forward towards Musiala who can see the whole play happening in front of him. And he just doesn't get there quickly enough. Germany moved the ball very, very quickly then while Richards is trying and trailing the play. And it goes from Musiala to Gosens and Gosens to Fulkrug. It's, it's a nice bit of play from Germany, I can't lie. But Richard's just maybe a half step behind for chunks of the second half.
0: Yeah, I, I think, again, worth noting that all three goals are sort of fortunate for Germany. So it's hard for me to say, like, Richards definitely should have done this, definitely should have done that. A lot of the time it's them stepping to try to catch people off and then maybe Sergio Dest not getting that memo. Or it's them trying to scramble a little bit because of a, a an unfortunate bounce or an unfortunate deflection. So I, watching all those goals a number of times I didn't see fully obvious mistakes from Richards, even though I think he gets megged for the third one and for the second one, like can't make that play in time. Uh, I think it is still sort of, he's doing his best and he is the least to blame. I think it's just oftentimes we talk about this, the person who is the one closest to the goal scorer gets the blame. And oftentimes when you rewatch it, they're the one who least deserves the blame Mm -hmm. because they're the one who reacted and like left their mark to go try to cover that wide open player and i do think richards looks bad on occasion in this game i don't think is really at fault for any of the goals necessarily but i think to your point does just look a little bit a step slow a, a little bit hesitant or maybe not quite as confident especially as the game goes on though i thought his his passing was pretty sharp he has one maybe this is the one you were talking about joe but he has a nice one with his left foot that he bends around two german players into joe scally and that mm. could have launched a counter but i think scally gives the ball away i thought scally was Fine. Uh, but, but, uh, that's like, also sorry, still on that sorry level. to interject. Mm-hmm.
1: That's like just the Joe Scally thing, isn't it? Yeah. Because I, I, that's exactly my thought as well. The fact that he was up to the level in this game mm-hmm. and, and didn't stick out in a bad way, I still count as a positive for him as a young fullback who still feels like doesn't have mm-hmm. a consistent side. But that is just like Joe Scally's thing, man. He is just, he's fine for Gladback. He's in the lineup a lot. He's fine for the U.S. He's the third fullback when Jedi Robinson's not available
0: or Des isn't available. And that's just kind of how it goes. Let me ask you this, though. If you flipped them and you had Scally starting on the left where we thought he might and Dest on the right, so now it's Scally up against Leroy Sané, do you think, if you had to guess, is it a better performance for the U.S., a worse performance, or about the same regardless? Is Sané just that good? I think it's about the same. I, okay. I think there were a handful of those moments,
1: Dest v. Sané, that Dest acquitted himself very well. And the same goes for Scally on the other side. It just isn't consistent. And and if you ask me who's going to win those matchups more often, Sané or any U.S. fullback, I will not be picking the U.S. fullback. So I'll go with probably a, yeah. about the same. I thought Beralter's choice to put Scali on the right and Dest on the left mostly was fine.
0: Maybe the, this is perhaps too harsh, but uh, I think when we talk about a team uh, for as much as we do, as often as we do, you and I talking about this U.S. team, you start to sort of lose a little bit of the... Like like appreciation for where the player actually is and their level of quality and ability versus mm. like, no, I've watched him enough. I've seen him be really good against this team, so he can be the best. And if I were going with like a fantasy football analogy, I think I think of Serginho Dest as like running back one. like You know he's going to get you solid results every single time. You know he's going to do exactly what you expect. You're going to be safe there, set it, and forget it. And I'm not sure that's who Dest is. I think he could be, but I think right now where he is in his career, if I lowered my expectations of Serginho Dest by like 20%, I would always be pleased with Dest. But because I expect <laughs> him to be one of the best players for the United States on both sides of the ball... I think I routinely come away frustrated because he either maybe is overly attacking and then gets caught out defensively or struggles 1v1 or on sort of direct balls. And I thought there were moments in this, in this game where you could tell that he was sort of like, it's that age-old defender thing of, if you cross the ball and someone else scores, it's not my fault. So I'm going to let you cross versus get beat 1v1. Or even uh, the second goal, I think, or the excuse me, the, the first goal for Germany is him sort of being like, Nah, you can go inside against a bunch of numbers. I'm not going to try to make a play here. It's not my fault. And then the second goal is him just switching off and not, Cl- not yeah. stepping out when the rest of the defense did. And those moments are always what has me frustrated about Dest. It's, but I think if I like lowered my expectation a little bit, then I would be pleasantly surprised and sort of expect that one big switch off in a critical moment.
1: Yeah, it, it's tough, man. The Serginho Dest conundrum is really, really difficult because in the attack, it's the same trade-off stuff I talked about earlier. In the attack, he's the best option the U.S. has. Like His mm-hmm. ability on the ball, he's not perfect, but he is somebody that you're much more comfortable playing against a high-level defense than any other fullback in the pool right now. But defensively, man, he does cost the U.S. Like, I can gripe about maybe Richard should react a little bit faster. Maybe Luca De La Torre needs to drop a little bit more or Musa in other moments, whatever. But it is desk keeping Germany on side, right? Like, at least from the angles that we yes. got oh, on it the fully, broadcast. It definitely was, so yeah. So maybe if, maybe you get a different angle, things look a bit different, but that's certainly how it seems to us.
0: Joe, can I, can I interject just to say, uh, I watched that one a bunch of times. And, and even if the angle is a little bit off, like maybe just maybe Reem or Richards keeps him on. What I will say is that to me, it was pretty clear that it was death keeping him on. He's definitely the deepest. And, when you watch the goal happen, Richards and Reem immediately turn and are like, what are you doing? Of course he's offside. How do you not call that? And Dest definitely just puts his head down and walks back towards midfield to restart. Yeah. Like he, I think he knows. I think he knows exactly what's just happened there uh, and is not looking forward to maybe the film session that will follow this game.
1: No, and, and that is the frustrating bit about Dest, right? You think about all the, the fun stuff he does in the attack. It takes a lot of fun attacking moments from Desk to equal a goal, right? <laughs> like That's just how, when you get like two-ish, three goals a game, and you give up one like this, it, it doesn't happen all the time for Desk, but it is not a good moment, and it is the latest in a series of trends where Desk is, is capable in moments, but is also vulnerable in moments defensively.
0: Yeah, so I think maybe, for me, again, if we're trying to like have takeaways and learn from this one, I think going forward against stronger opposition... I'm just going to be more nervous about Serginho Dest starting, not to then be like, "Oh, I knew this wasn't going to work," but just more so to be pleasantly surprised, basically, as like passive or backhanded as that sounds. It's not meant to. It's just I think he's asked to do a crazy amount to be involved in the attack, to be involved in possession, to be involved in set pieces and in goal scoring and in and getting shots off himself. Uh, but then also defensively tracking back and being switched on at all times. It's just it's asking a lot of him, and I think. He should continue to start for the United States. I think he is maybe with when Jedi's back, he's Jedi might have him beat. I was gonna say he might be the best at either spot, but I think Jedi hasn't beat at left back. But I still think Dest is is the person who should be starting and will be starting. I just I'm going to approach it more of a like, I'm a little bit nervous if they, if they get into 1v1 situations, but we'll see what happens. Then I would be otherwise. So that's where I, I am on Dest. Uh, we've talked about plenty of other people. We have not yet talked about Matt Turner. And boy, do we need to talk about Matt Turner yeah. for a second. Joe, I'm just going to clear out and uh, lean back and let you have a go. He was so good in this game, and I know that sounds stupid
1: when the U.S. concede three goals, but this is why watching the tape and, and looking at some of the advanced metrics, which I, I haven't seen any for this game besides the, the XG totals, but which you have are very heavily, in yep. Germany's have in favor, but yeah, I have watched the tape, and Matt Turner was awesome in this game, really, really, really good. Comes up big in the 22nd minute, comes up big in the 47th minute, easy save in the 46th. Massive save, though, in the 49th minute. Fulkrug fires a shot towards the near post, and Turner's just there. He's solid in that moment. I- I'd be curious uh, what-, what some of the-, the advanced metrics really do have to say about Turner mm-hmm. in this game, but he came up over and over and over again for the USMNT. I think he's even, you know, does fairly well on some of the goals in terms of his decisions yeah. to come out and-, and try to close down the angle. It just doesn't quite work out for him in the United States in those sequences, but man, he saved the U.S., uh, and, and it, it, I guess it's a bit of a cliche to say it could have been a, a bit wider in terms of the scoreline, because the U.S. could have put a couple on the back of the net if things go a little bit differently for them, just as if they had gone differently for Germany. But setting all that aside, Matt Turner was real good today, Taylor, and he is the number one forever.
0: Yup. Especially, I mean, even the the first goal, the Gundogan goal, it's him sort of coming off his line quickly to try to make a play on Sané, and I think does. It's just he pushes it away from Sané, but unfortunately he pushes it into the feet of Gundogan, which I guess you could criticize, but for me, he's made a play on the primary threat, pushed the ball away, not conceded a penalty, and then it's just unfortunate that there's not more cover around him or that maybe he's not able to push it a little bit more. But I think he also has a couple different saves where I was sure, if you paused it, I was like, well, that's a goal for sure. Full Krug has, I think, two of them. Uh, and he doesn't. And one of them is poor finishing, but Turner still makes the save. Uh, another one is just a good save. And then Turner has the one on the kind of snap save on Gundogan to start the mm-hmm. second half that he sees late and makes the save. He has the other one at the near post that he pushes wide that definitely should have been a goal. So... Uh, not that the striker should have done better, but just that it, it felt like a very good opportunity. So I think this could have been much worse, and I think we saw Matt Turner do Matt Turner things, but then also, to my mind, we saw him be pretty good in distribution. I felt like there were moments when he could have panicked, and maybe once or twice looks somewhat shaky, but for the most part, I felt like even under pressure, he, he kind of backs himself to find a pass. And then in his throne distribution, that's one that I always sort of forget about, that he can with a throw, find somebody on like a dime, maybe 40 or 50 yards down the line or in the channel or out wide or whatever it may be. And and that's such an important part of, of being able to attack off of set pieces and being able to kind of launch attacks that it's another thing that stood out to me from this game and a good reminder that Matt Turner has a variety of things that make him Matt Turner. He's a match winner
1: for the U.S. Like genuinely, he really is. Mm-hmm. If we think about Christian Pulisic or Valoran as as those players maybe in the attack right now, Holissa gets the U.S. on the board. Turner keeps things level in this first half for a while and, and keeps the, the margin scalable, at least for the U.S., even though it never really felt like in the second half that the U.S. is going to climb back into the driver's seat in this game. He's he's a big-time player for the U.S. last cycle. That was very much the case as well. He's capable of winning the U.S. games and of keeping them in them, and, and we're certainly seeing that again to start this new one.
0: We, uh, we are... Pretty clear in our love of Matt Turner. I was going to say we are famously in love with Matt Turner, but really it's just Joe who's famously in love with Matt Turner. Going the other way, we sometimes get criticism for not like giving Pulisic the credit he deserves or hmm. the perceived credit that he deserves. Um, and yet in this game, scores the goal. Uh, I, I have – he has the goal. He has the moment where he's 1v1 and goes down after a touch wide. I have a few notes about his distribution where I thought his set piece uh, delivery was better. I I have so few notes about Christian Pulisic that I'm slightly confused. Joe, do you have much to say about his performance? Because I thought the goal was obviously exceptional and the confidence he shows there is great. Uh, I suspect if I were to watch this game back again and really focus on him, I would start to see a lot more of what he does and sort of the connective glue of the buildup. But... I don't really have a ton to say about Pulisic, so maybe you do or maybe not. I have a
1: decent number of notes on him. Now, a lot of those are set pieces, and he was, again, tasked with taking set pieces. I thought was fine. Not as bad as we've seen at times. Christian Pulisic pretty famously poor at set pieces with the U.S. Men's National Team, both corner kicks and free kicks. He had some nice deliveries. He also had some poor ones, but on the whole, given where the bar that is for Christian Pulisic's dead ball deliveries, I do I do think he stepped over or at least met that bar in this game, I have a handful of other notes. Third minute, nice little bit of combo play down the left side, sort of the U.S. establishing their intent to, to play and, and to not really be afraid of Germany in this game. Fourth minute, he has that good yeah. run in behind and he puts the ball in the back of the net, but he is offside. I love that he finished that play, by the way. No mm-hmm. VAR from what I, I could grasp from my, my Spanish commentary on Telemundo, but like awesome nonetheless. I think that's the smart thing to do and just having grains in you as you're going out there and, and scoring offside or not offside goals. Uh, he has a moment that I, I didn't love in the 19th minute where he has Ta 1v1. So Ta playing as the right-sided center back for Germany, Christian Pulisic on the left wing for the U.S. He has Ta 1v1, and a right-sided center back slash right back for, the U, uh, for Germany because Nagelsmann was, was mm-hmm. having them be fluid depending on the moment. But it's 1v1 between those two players, and this this frustrated me because Christian Pulisic is a really, really dangerous 1v1 dribbler. That is like his, his biggest thing. That and his off-ball movement crashing the box. Those are his things. And instead of really trying to size up Ta and drive past him and beat him for pace, to be fair, he does that like seven, eight minutes later, he just crosses the ball in the box. And that that was one of the moments where I think we still see Christian Pulisic as being a shade off the best in the world, like being a what, shade what off. What minute was that? Sorry. That's in the 19th minute, like the okay. very beginning of the mm-hmm. 19th minute. I have 18.06 down in my notes. Leroy Sané, I think punishes you there. Jamal Musiala, I think punishes you there, or at least tries to, right? And, and Christian Pulisic chose what I believe is the lower percentage chance there. But that's just part of his game, right? If you watch any elite attacker, and, and some are more efficient than others, but you watch any elite attacker, and they're not gonna be perfect because they're in the hardest moments to convert. They're in those 1v1s or they're in 1v2s. And Christian Pulisic was in those ga- in those moments in this game too. So I don't expect him to ever be perfect and, and to get through 90 minutes plus without putting a foot wrong. But the goal makes up for a mm-hmm. lot of ground here. The yes, set pieces, again, were, were fine. And I think he was bright. Like overall, I think Pulisic had a, a good game. And the goal makes it look like something even more than a good game.
0: Yeah, uh, certainly on the goal. I think also the reason why I asked what what minute that was for Pulisic was because I feel like the United States was way less inclined to settle for sort of low percentage crosses in that first half than I remember. And that really might be the only one. because I did not even have that in my notes. I'm glad that you did. But it stood out to me that the first half there was much more. Let's keep the ball. Let's possess. Let's try to find a pass. And if we end up losing the ball or if a shot gets deflected or a shot goes wide, so be it. But there wasn't nearly as much like just cut it back to a fullback and then cross it and hope someone gets on the end of it. That felt much more common in minutes like 50 to 70 of the second half where the U.S. I think felt... Significantly less uh, determined to take people on to make things happen, and more content to kind of hope and and hit crosses and see what happens. So I'm glad that there wasn't more of that, and I do think Pulisic is is oftentimes pretty key in the United States going one way or the other. So I'm glad that after that 19th minute cross, there was more. Direct dribbling and direct play from him. Uh, I would rather see more of that from Christian Pulisic as we go. I think I'd also rather see more of Florian Balogun, just generally speaking. Uh, didn't see a ton of him in this one. I think he he's asked to do a lot of work on both sides of the ball. So I saw him tracking back a lot. I saw him helping to either apply pressure or occasionally force Germany into bad passes or giveaways or mistakes. Uh, so I liked Balogun's defensive efforts. Yeah. Um, and then I liked, as much as I saw from him in the attack, I don't feel like it was certainly his his sharpest attacking game. But I'm not sure much of that sort of anonymity was his own fault. No,
1: I don't, I don't think so. For me, Taylor... I'd be curious to go back and look at all the touches for Balogun and maybe even comparing those to his touches at club level. So getting that that cross section really for club and country. I don't think he's still quite involved enough for the national team. Now he has a, a, a handful of really nice, crisp bits of combination play, just like basically every other US attacker did in the first half. He's involved in those sequences, but he doesn't still get on the end of a lot of stuff. And I, I honestly don't think it's Florian Balogun's fault. We've seen him be an elite goal scorer in in probably the fifth or sixth best league in the world in, in France. like He knows how to find good chances. Mm-hmm. The U.S., I just don't think, are fully clicked in with him yet. And I, honestly, I don't really have a problem with that. First time we ever saw Ball again for the U.S. was in the summer, and it's been, what, like four months since then, and, and now this is the third camp that he's been in. I don't blame anybody for still trying to figure out the way he works, but I don't think the U.S. has figured it out. I don't think... Christian Pulisic yet knows all the ways to feed him the ball. I don't think Tim Weah knows all of those. I don't think Reyna or McKenney or or Musa or Dest or whoever has really figured out exactly what it's like to play with and Balogun. So it's just another data point for me in that it's going to take time. It's already taken time. It's probably going to take a little bit more time. But if things start to click, the U.S. will ratchet up another level. I think they already have, right? Even just with Balogun in the lineup, I think they've gotten better. But I think there's another rung for them to go and really improve.
0: I think Balogun is like the new iPhone where you sort of use it the same way you use the old one. And then it takes you maybe a little bit too long to realize like, oh, that's a really interesting new feature. Oh, I didn't know I could do that. Like I I do think if we're looking at like takeaways and things to keep an eye on as we go – basically unlocking all of Balogun's features and then properly utilizing them is probably a good thing for the United States to focus on as we continue to roll forward. Uh, who knows if there's enough time between now and the Ghana game to unlock, I don't know, his his superior picture-taking abilities, Balogun, if we're continuing the iPhone analogy, which we shouldn't. Uh, but Joe, is there anything you would like to see in that Ghana game? When the U.S. was beating Germany 1-0, And I thought, I let myself believe for a moment that they could get that win. I I will say, maybe it's the cynic in me that my immediate thought was like, they're going to lose to Ghana. So now that we've lost to Germany, at least we know that we're going to beat Ghana. That's totally how this is going to play out. Are there things that you would like to see either in approach, in sort of adjusting from this game in terms of starting eleven? Is there anything that you would like to see against Ghana, Joe?
1: Yeah, I would like to see Balogun spotlighted a bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in terms of lineup and personnel, I'd be perfectly happy if there were no changes. I'm fine if there's Mm -hmm. a center back change. I'm fine if if the fullback situation gets shuffled a bit. But I think really this is pretty much as good as it gets for the U.S. in this camp without Tyler Adams. So I think that's the way I would go if I'm Greg Baralter. And then I want to see the U.S. go out there and, and improve on some of the attacking Moments that we saw in this game keep combining, keep those little crisp one, two touch passes, but really continue to evolve, continue to improve and, and find more and more of those moments and be a bit more goal dangerous. It's a lot easier for me to say than than for anybody to actually go out there and do it. But the talent is there and, and Ghana will be an easier foe than Germany in some respects. And the other thing, t- uh, Taylor, that I, I think is really important for this U.S. team is like recover your defensive dignity, right? They were... Too slow and and struggled in, in ways we've already talked about. Some tactical stuff, some like just genuine one-on-one, like I need to step up and make my play here or I need to be aware yeah. in this moment. That was missing. And it, it wasn't really missing a lot for the U.S. in the last World Cup qualifying cycle. It wasn't really missing for the U.S. a lot in the last World Cup period outside of a couple of those bad moments against the Netherlands. The U.S.'s defending was their their best thing like Matt Turner plus the defensive structure plus the the effort and the grit of that midfield and their ability to cover ground and the center backs covering ground in the middle of the back line that was the U.S.'s best thing and I think it needs to continue to be like if not their best thing right up there as the attack evolves because they're still not on talent going to be as good as the Mm -hmm. the best of the best by the time the World Cup comes around that's just not going to happen so the defending needs to, to be rejuvenated against Ghana. I think we'll see that. I think we'll see a lot more determination and, and fight in every moment after mm-hmm. this game when people go back and watch the tape. But that's one thing I'll be watching for. I'm not really worried about it, but I will be watching for it.
0: You mentioned you wouldn't mind like running back the starting 11 if we change a center back, we change full fullback, so be it. Uh, the consensus seems to be, rightly or wrongly, that you give Reyna 45 minutes here and then you send him on home and you don't risk anything else and you let him get back with, with Dortmund. Um, So if they don't do that and he starts, cool. Uh, But in the event that they do, and we don't have Reyna for the Ghana game, is there anybody you would prefer to see over anybody else? Like we talked a bit about Luca De La Torre and where his level might be at present. He feels the one most likely to start, but I'm not... Sure, I'd love that, although maybe it's the Luca De La Torre redemption game uh, against Ghana. Joe, do you have a, a preference? Is it De La Torre? Is it maybe see what Aronson can do? Is it something else entirely? I know we talked about De La Torre, not the most positive light here. Against a team that you expect to
1: control the ball against, and, and I do think the U.S. will control against Ghana, I would still go De La Torre over, okay. over basically anybody else. The other wrinkle here could be to go with Cardoso or Maloney as a six and push Musa higher. And I'm not necessarily opposed to that either, I just think De La Torre is a better player than either of those. So if you're trying to maximize talent in a a, not ideal situation, given a couple of absences in this scenario, I'd probably stick De La Torre on as either a six or an eight and use Musa in the other spot and play McKinney across from them.
0: There we go. Uh, Well, that game is Tuesday evening. In terms of our schedule for the week, uh, the four of us, myself and Joe and then Graham and Ryan, will be back Tuesday with some listener questions. Joe is going to be at the U23 game, so we're not going to cover... The Ghana game that evening, Joe and I are going to do a, a, a lengthy, detailed review on Wednesday. Uh, and then we've got, uh, what else to round out the week, Joe?
1: Ah, uh, you're Something asking the else? tough
0: questions. I'm checking the slack currently oh, as we international, speak. International window roundup, there it is. That's the one ah, I keep forgetting. That's a thing. Just, yes, because yes, yep. I know Graham is going to do... Between 10 and 400 minutes on how Scotland were cheated out of a win versus Spain. I'm I'm slightly nervous for that one and then we'll obviously have the big thing uh, to round it out. So Joe and I will be back doing listener questions on Tuesday and then a full review of the Ghana game on Wednesday. For now, though, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for spending your weekend evening talking about the USA's loss to Germany. And also thank you for going to that U23 game. I'm really excited uh, for what your notes are on that one, who stands out and and uh, and who you get to talk to as well. Uh, so, Joe Lowry, thank you for all that and much, much more. Yeah,
1: I think I'm kind of broken that this is one of the best ways I get to spend a Saturday night. Um, <laughs> Taylor,
0: this is a lot of fun nah, and I'm looking great. forward to chatting next week. Uh, listeners, hopefully, this was a fun way for you to spend a Saturday night or a Sunday or a Monday. Whenever you're listening, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, we'll talk to you again very soon.